$5 to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. Many years after we moved into our house, we finally hung up our art. And we'd hung up individual pieces, maybe something that was already in a frame. But it was a piecemeal effort, a nail here, a hook there. And we continued to accumulate meaningful pieces from travels or family events. And we continued to occasionally pull out the box. I think it was a moving box made for a mirror. And spread out the various bits and pieces and just generally fantasize about having them up. But my goal was to have a plan, some intentional way of placing the different posters, prints, and photos throughout our house. And every time we would try that, I would get overwhelmed and give up. I'd try taking small bites. After seeing homes with big frames and medium photographs, we chose a few key photographs from our travels, blew them up, and ordered specially cut mat boards and frames. We mapped out where in our living room these would go. We essentially carved off part of the home and planned the photographs that would go there. I hoped that this would simplify the challenge of where to put the remaining posters, but we found ourselves stuck, still. Eventually, we opened up that box and made some hard decisions about what to hang and what to set aside, and then, before too much time could go by, arranged to get everything framed. We were inching closer, but sitting with our posters and prints all framed, we still couldn't figure out what to hang where, and so, and this shouldn't be surprising, I got overwhelmed and gave up. But buried in that frustration and surrender was a recognition of what skills I'm missing, an ability to reorganize visual information spatially in a few different ways, a set of starting principles for grouping, placing, and so on. Surely someone must have this expertise and be offering it as a service? And it turns out that yes, there are professional picture hangers. We called one we booked an appointment. A few weeks later, on the scheduled day, at the expected time, the doorbell rang. We answered the door, and before we could finish greeting them, two men were in our foyer, one of them having magically unfolded a flat briefcase shape that transformed into a table with a soft thump noise. The guy with the table handled production. The other one handled creative and the clients, us. We showed them all our framed pieces, and we talked a little about what they meant. We showed them around our house, pointing out areas we were interested in and the few pieces that we had already hung. Meanwhile, he was riffing constantly, throwing out ideas, getting energized, delegating to the production guy who began attaching extra mounting hooks and hanging wire to all of our store-bought frames. After a short time, we backed off and watched them work. The creative guy began moving frames into different rooms, laying them on the floor and trying different combinations. Like a problem-solving algorithm, the solution began to appear bit by bit. The floors throughout our house began to fill with clusters and arrangements of different prints, both thematic and visual groupings. We were called in for frequent consultations as the plan emerged. Eventually, there was a final plan for where everything was going to go. This was the piece we could not have done ourselves, and in a short time, they had done it. Then came the rest of the production. They began hanging up everything. That meant figuring out where each item went exactly, putting in nails in exactly the right spot, using a level, all the details. Especially because so many pictures were clustered, something being slightly off would really show, so perfect execution was key. This was also something we could have not pulled off ourselves. The final results were astonishing. 
Rather than hanging things in a grid with the top edges aligned and a consistent space between each, they put together a number of clusters where the posters emanated from a central point in an almost spiral flow. And they chose how to place different prints within that cluster in order to create a kinetic sense, such as having a poster with a bird along the left-hand side with the bird facing to the right so that the content of the images supported the physical placement on the wall. This was not something we could have even imagined, let alone executed. It is immensely gratifying to be in the presence of a highly skilled individual. When those skills are being deployed for your benefit, it adds another layer of delight. I believe that delight is further enhanced when we ourselves have tried and failed. This story is a reminder to me to seek out those magically talented individuals and take advantage of what they have to offer whenever I can. And it's my goal to be a magically talented individual for the people I work with. Someone who helps drive towards outcomes that otherwise aren't achievable without my help. I strive to conduct user research with that kind of finesse. I hope that when I coach and train teams in doing research, I'm helping them see what that magical level of skill looks like and move them forward on their own path towards achieving that. I would love to hear from you about what you are working on and how my expertise can support you in moving your effort forward. Please keep me in mind. Now, let's go to my interview with Danielle Smith. She's the Senior Director of Experience Research and Accessibility at Express Scripts. Well, Danielle, welcome to Dollars to Donuts. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with an introduction from you to say a little bit about what you do, where you work. My name is Danielle Smith. I am Senior Director of Experience Research and Accessibility at Express Scripts. Express Scripts is actually a Cigna company, um, but we are a pharmacy benefit provider. So we help with getting your prescription drugs if you have insurance coverage. We are one of the companies that help with that. And my team measures the quality of the user experience from a few different perspectives. One includes user experience research. The other is our NPS program for our digitally engaged customers and our data science team and some digital metric reporting all resides with my team. So I want to ask about your team, but I want to just back up slightly. Who are the kinds of people that are having this digital experience with your company? So our digital experience is primarily geared towards people who have prescription drug coverage through their health insurance provider or directly if you're on Medicare Part D, but you are interested in getting home delivery of your maintenance medications. Our website does have kind of general information. If, um, if you do have a health plan, you want to go in there, look up a medicine, see how much it costs, um, at which pharmacies, but most of the functionality on our digital tools for consumers really look at the home delivery of medicine. And then you use the phrase to kind of describe what your team does. It's about measuring quality. Is that right? Yeah, that's sort of the way I think of it. Can you pick apart that phrase a little bit? It's an interesting one, and I'm curious how you think about it. Something that I've really thought about or changed the way I've thought about since I've been at Express Scripts. We are in the healthcare ecosystem. So the experiences we deliver, if they are not, if they are poor or if they are not of quality, they do have serious repercussions on people's lives, on people's time. So when I think about my team, we are almost ethically bound to measure the user experience from different perspectives. So before something launches and we have prototypes or concepts or ideas, is we do our due diligence in terms of user experience research to make sure that the thing that we're putting out on the world doesn't just happen to people. We have some idea of its usability, its appropriateness, and we really try to test, uh, test in air quotes, do research on everything before it hits the site. Um, some cases, of course, we can't do that. And I'll talk about that one in a second, but we try to do, I would say, far 
right above 80% of what hits the site goes through some level of user research. Related to that, and another aspect of what we do to ensure quality is to make sure it's accessible. Um, most of our accessibility work has really geared towards visual impairments or different visual abilities because we are the digital team. So my team serves as subject matter experts to help our developers, our marketers, um, to deliver experiences that are usable by people that use screen readers or have low vision just right out of the gate. So we don't have a separate experience for folks who may be having any sort of different visual abilities. And that was a big point of focus for the first few years of my role here was to just really get that going. But it's part of our user experience practice and it's in on the research team because we do specifically do studies, blind and low vision users throughout the year to make sure even though something's technically compliant, it is actually usable by folks who use a screen reader specifically. But following good design practice and rolling in those things before you launch still does not guarantee good experiences. And so the other parts of my team work to measure how what we build interacts with reality and to see if it does actually generate a good experience and has you know high quality like we want. So the NPS program, I know NPS itself is a problematic metric and has its haters in the industry, and that's fine. I'm not here to defend it. But what it does is gives it lets us speak in a voice that executives understand, and it gives us the leeway to have an open channel with our users. So we send out these monthly surveys for one part of the program, but another part of the program allows users to leave feedback directly in our mobile app, on our website, and tell us what's going on. So yeah, they give us a score, we report the score, executives love the score, but the words that they use when they tell us if we're on the mark or off the mark have been priceless in making sure that things actually work as intended, given reality. And then the other piece is behavioral analytics. So we run A-B tests, we instrument the site and make sure that things are working the way we think they should work in terms of people flowing through um, different funnels or parts of the site and monitor the experience that way. So we work really closely with our product teams to help them understand their metrics, make sure they're gathering metrics and help them use them and interpret them in the right ways. So when you use the word quality, what does that mean for you? So for me, I'm using quality to be synonymous with a good user experience. And healthcare is so complicated. I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say we're going to delight people. I just want them to be able to get their task accomplished, which is getting their drugs prescriptions delivered or checking the status of their delivery. I want them to get their tasks accomplished with ease. And that's what I mean by quality. Are we not getting in their way? Do we make them feel like they're part of the process? And do they understand what's going on? Because it's complicated enough. And then you also used a phrase, I hope I get this right, working as intended, given reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Reality, when you're talking about healthcare, is something that we cannot ignore and we can't, we can't even formulate all of the scenarios a person might be in. At least we can't do that yet. And people's realities might be like right now, like, oh, okay, well, now my doctor's office is closed and I need a refill. How do I do that? Um, it's a pandemic. What's going on? So we have to be making sure that we are listening to user feedback to make sure we update the website and even communications and talk to our friends in the call center to make sure that we are ready to respond to our users' reality. Smaller, like everyday situations happen. As you can imagine, if you're, you're sick, there's some conditions that give you kind of a transient low vision situation. So you used the website yesterday. I 
my team wants to make sure you, you can use the website tomorrow. Just because you, you're on this medication or you have this condition should not take away your ability to use certain tools. We also have lots of families. Family situations are fluid. Who has access to your account today? You might not want them to have access to your account tomorrow. Uh, and this is your health information. So we have to be always ready to listen and react when people's contexts change or their actual reality is way more complicated than we even thought of when we were designing the, a user interface. Can you say a little more now about the word measure as kind of the key verb that you use to describe kind of overall what you all are doing? Sure. And I'm glad you picked up on that because I don't want to give people the wrong impression that we don't do discovery and we don't do qual, but I am of the belief that the work that we do is still measurement. It may not have a type metric, it might not have a number around it, but it is still the collecting of data to get at some underlying construct as best as we can. And I was recently reminded that I came from a grad program that was more quant leaning. And it's probably why I, I did grow my team the way that it grew is more including analytics as well as user research and having them live side by side. So it's not just about things we can put a number on. It is about understanding scenarios and understanding people and listening to um, how we can resonate with our users more. So I don't want to miscategorize what we do, but I think of measure in the broad sense of the word. I mean, it's a really powerful frame for what research does. And there are lots of different frames for, you know, if you have to say one word, what is it that we do? And measure isn't one that I have heard all that often, but it's very compelling, especially when you kind of explain, hey, there's lots of different kinds of measurement. Mm -hmm. And even when you're talking before about NPS and part of its value as a way to open up a conversation with other people in the organization. When you say measure overall, I, I imagine that that is similar, that by framing this around measurement, you are positioning yourself relative to your stakeholders and colleagues, that this is the kind of guidance and information that you can bring. Yeah. And I talk about it that way. I talk about what my team does is X data. It sounds very superhero-like, but it's just like it's data about the user experience. And just because I say data does not mean it's all quantitative. And it's taken a while for our partners and even some folks on my team to get on board with this idea, but we need to be able to have some sort of convergence on the user experience Con and convergent validity is a goal of most research teams that I've been exposed to, where you want to have some analytics showing a problem, some user research giving you the other side of it, um, maybe some survey data to give you some aspect of scale of some of those opinions. And by us all being on the same team, it gives us that ability to be fluid in our methods and speak to the business in a way that allows them to hear us. And sometimes that way is to use NPS or a web analytic metric to get our foot in the door and expand how they view the users by layering on the qualitative. And sometimes it's vice versa. We have different stakeholders that are more interested in hearing qualitative data, and then we overlay some quant to help them understand scale and focus, and or if it's even able to get to that level of maturity, given where we are in the process. Accessibility is part of the group, and for me, it's new to hear accessibility specifically called out alongside other different roles. How did accessibility end up being part of what your team is focused on? Oh man, it's hilarious. It was just like a line in my job description. <laughs> and I was just like, huh, okay. And I thought what that meant was 
this is literally my first week on the job. I thought that would be similar to my accessibility role in other parts of my other jobs I've had before, which was as a usability person, I need to be aware accessibility exists. And I can roll in some tests in my normal course of evaluation that help the accessibility team check their boxes about compliance. However, I did not do my due diligence about looking at the Express Scripts website to understand what that line in my job description actually meant. <laughs> and I'll just say, like at previous jobs, like um, Dell and like larger companies have specific hardware interface requirements that come from the accessibility team that kind of get handed to the usability team that we just make sure as we go through development, make sure that they get rolled in. What I did not notice at Express Scripts was that back when I joined the company in 2016, they had two different websites. There was a link on the top of the site that said accessible view, and it took you to a text-only view of the website. And during my first week on the job, my boss is explaining this to me and how nobody really wanted that to be the strategy in the future. I was like, oh, <laughs> so we need to learn how to build accessible websites. She's like, yeah. I'm like, uh, oh, okay. Well, let me figure out how to do that. So it was a whole different, a different perspective on the same problem, but it gave me the opportunity for us to say that we're going to build a website that works for folks of different abilities without having this separate site that was personally offensive to me as a Black person to have something separate for people who are different really annoyed me. So I wanted to make that go away and have a more inclusive web experience. So that became part of our world because at the time, Express Scripts was really open to having a much more modern digital experience. We came up with a plan to help spread that awareness, spread that skill set across the organization. One person on my team really picked up the mantle and dove into accessibility, best practices, compliance. She's not a lawyer, but building relationships across the organization to have that compliance kind of network. And then diving into doing research with folks with different abilities, like specifically people that use screen readers, because we wanted to make sure that not only did it kind of pass all the, the checks, but that it, like I said, was usable and bring that video and bring those usability results into the organization so that they could understand what it meant to be inclusive in that way. And that just really fit with, with the way we do user research. Because that whole point, a lot of the, the point of user research is to bring the voice of the user outside of our walls into our walls to help people inside the company understand the operating environment of people outside of the company. And by having a focus on accessibility within user research, it allows us to apply those same principles, same practices that folks were kind of used to, but with a different audience. And it just really worked well. And so I can't remember the date, but it was at least two years ago. We sunset at that old site. We have one experience and we have a group of folks within the organization that are really passionate about this. Um, developers help each other out. Under normal situations, we would actually run usability testing on site at the American Council of the Blind to get more engagement from that community. It actually turned into a natural extension of a usability team. I'm using old words, showing my age, but <laughs> a user experience team. Because as designers, as researchers, we are responsible for inclusivity. And accessibility is one part of that. And in healthcare, especially, we cannot, in all good consciousness, exclude that important of a population. 
And so we do have focus on that. And we, we have it in the name of the group. We want to remind people that this is who we are, what we do. And now we have this culture in the org that I almost don't have to, but I probably still will. Are there designers who are specifically focused on designing the accessible experiences? No, every designer is responsible for it. So we have, like I said, the SMEs on my team help to make sure that uh, new designers have gone through whatever training modules that are we have available. Design for accessibility is rolled into our design language, and it is part of the core competency of every designer, of the content team, of the development team, to just build it into everything we do. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that your team, and I know your team covers a lot of different functions, but how you work with other parts of the organization? So Express Scripts being a healthcare org is a little different than a lot of the technology companies I've worked with before. The design team lives in IT. So there is one big group that handles all of the external and internal facing technology needs. And that's a little different from what I was used to but it works out really well here. We work very closely with our technical product owners and partners within the business. How do you plan for what it is that people on your team are going to be working on? So we are aligned to the technology org. So I'd say like once a year, we align on our big buckets of work. So we know we are going to work on the website, on the side of the member experience or the user experience. We're going to work on the website. We're going to work on the mobile application. And we're going to work on maybe one or two other properties or different experiences. And so once we've aligned on that, across the product team, the design team, and the front end engineering team, then we each kind of go off to our own teams and look at like how much work can we actually do. So this has been an ongoing area of maturity for us as a leader of people. It's something I've had to learn to have to take different approaches to doing. Um, I know this wasn't really your question, but I'm, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Go for it. User research, design, content, kind of the big D of design. We're all in this field because we have this level of empathy for folks. We believe we want to design things that make the world better. And what I've learned as a leader of people is who has to manage like resources and organizational requests and put together budgets and plans and stuff. It's hard to figure out how much work we actually can do when no one on the team wants to say no to anything. And as a leader, I've had to figure out different ways of trying to manage that. It's been very illuminating. Like, cause I'm sure I was this person when I was like fresh out of school too. Like, oh, I can do it. I can do all this stuff. And then later I'm, my work quality suffers. Turns out I'm working on the weekends and at night, I might start to resent the work I'm doing. And if I just raised my hand and said, hey, I know I said I could do all these, all these things, but turns out I can only do one of them. My life would have been a lot better. <laughs> And so as a leader of people, I try, I've been working really hard, really closely with the other leaders on my team, the other people on the team to help understand, you know, how much work can be done in a given situation to help evangelize the message of how much more impact we can do if we just focus on one or two things that we know we can achieve and say no politely, but start to learn to build the muscle of no. 
that's been my own personal growth area as a leader and as a and as individual. I'm guilty of that too, like I said. But trying to plan the work and where to focus becomes easier as you learn as a UX professional to accept the things that you can do and be cognizant and aware of what you can't do and communicate that up to your, your leadership, your peers, so that everyone knows what, what's possible. You reframe for me when you say, kind of describing no as I can't do it, not no as I refuse to do it. Right. There's a human limitation that we don't always take into account. Right. There's a human limitation to everything. And we know that our work takes time. I mean, everyone's work takes time. But if you're going to do a good job, I mean, you know this as a consultant, it's hard to tell a client no, but you're not really telling them no or refuse. You're telling them, well, I could do that, but it would suck. (laughs) If you want me to do it well it's going to take this long, or we can do fewer things in a shorter amount of time. Having that conversation is a skill that needs to be developed and it will make you much more successful in the long run. Well, that makes me think that there needn't always be a flat no, that it can be in the example you just modeled, you know, you're coming back with, here's the trade-off. So here's the consequences. So you're facilitating something. Yes. That's my kind of when I say my personal growth, that's my, has been my growth. It's not just no, it's a, here's why I don't think this is a good idea, or I won't be able to do these things. Here's why. And this is what I think we can do in the meantime, or this is how I think we can engage other options to get this done. It's not the flat no, and it's not the, yeah, I'll do it. And I'm secretly working all day. When I asked you about accessibility, you went all the way back to your first week on the job and what that was like. And we're talking a little more now about where things are at right now. And I wonder, maybe just a stepping back question, if you could describe a little more of that arc, like what you came into, how your job has evolved over the years that you've been there, up to date where we're at now. When I came in a little over four years ago now, it was at the beginning of what we thought of as our technology transformation. And part of that was building a design team. So there were only a handful of folks, and I was brought in as a director to build a user research team. And that was a lot of um, kind of executive conversations about the value of user research, about building and understanding about how we would work, lots of process work, lots of quick and quick in air quotes, because nothing is really quick in healthcare, but doing some initial studies to demonstrate the utility of what we do, creating lots of new templates and giving feedback on presentation styles so that we can communicate value and consistency. And that didn't take as long as I would have expected. And it wasn't as hard as I was expected. And by that, I mean, I've come from other organizations that had more or less established UX disciplines or some sort of experience discipline. Um, I'd been a consultant for a couple of years. So what I was expecting coming in was like to have to do a lot of kind of arguing, honestly, to talk about how this was important and we needed it. And I had to do very little of that. And that was a real surprise for me. So Wes, I mean, it was like, it's not that it was super easy. It's just that doing that work did not take up as much of my life as I thought it would, because it was mostly an awareness problem. People just didn't know that these disciplines existed. And once they heard about them and understood the work that we did, they became avid consumers. So it was like a big, we got a lot of fans I did a couple of presentations to senior leadership, but to this day, the Express Scripts (laughs) 
president will wave at me in the hallway because he back in those days, there was a lot of conversations about what users are doing. Um, I also presented to clients a lot. So the way that our business works, like I mentioned in the beginning, is that we help with your prescriptions if you have coverage with health insurance. So our clients are really the health insurance plans or different businesses if they self-fund their health insurance. And because this was a new function within the company, we wanted to make sure our clients understood that we were doing this and that if I sent someone a survey and they reached out to their health plan administrator, it wasn't new news. So that was a a different thing for me to have all these client conversations. And I still do that to an extent, but now our sales team kind of knows about what we do so they can speak to it. I just get pulled into client conversations on a less frequent basis. But back then I was probably going to St. Louis a couple times a month to show clients our usability lab and talk to them about what it is that we did for the first um, probably two years of my job. After like the first couple of years, usability practice matured. We had a couple of folks on my team start to do um, analytics and data science. We'd kind of taken over the NPS program to clean it up and systematize it. And now we have a, what I would say is a healthy analytics practice where we can start to put things in place like AP testing and talking about um, how that is used in the organization and become consultants for different analysis questions. So we've gone from kind of not like having these little pieces of UX, like there's a couple of UX people bring it across the organization, a couple of folks doing usability testing. They started building a lab before I got hired, honestly. So they knew they wanted to do this. They had executive buy-in, but really rolling it into product and having it not be a optional check the box thing really started to happen over the last couple of years. And now it's a almost gotten to be a management of demand. Like I'm this umbrella shield to keep my team from getting sideways projects as we call it. Like So, and my job itself, I started off with a small team as a director. Now I'm a senior director. So I'm pretty well removed from doing research. Uh, back then, I think I, I managed a vendor on one project. I was pretty well involved with a couple others. I might have done a survey or two myself. And now I can't I joke all the time. Like, I don't know how to do anything. All I do I know how to do is make PowerPoint slides. And I barely do that. <laughs> it's like, I just, I listen to what my team tells me and I make a path for them to have impact in the organization. So my job has changed from building the competency demonstrating that we have this competency and getting buy-in to making sure that what we, the work that we do is impactful. And I do that by clearing barriers, helping where I can to identify stakeholders and to fix some sort of weird problems we may uncover to helping my team to understand how the business works and vice versa, helping the business understand how uh, different new parts of the business understand how my team works and how they may or may not work with us. What are sideways projects? <laughs> um, sideways projects are you or I, somebody on my team did some big presentation to like a lunch and learn or something. And someone in a different part of the business, let's say in our traditional IT department, like let's say they, they make dashboards for infrastructure monitoring. I'm making this up. So they heard of my team. They heard it was a, we are a thing. They love this idea. They contact a person on my team, ask them if they can help them by running a usability test on their infrastructure monitoring thing. And that is a sideways project. 
<laughs> I have to kind of make sure that we don't say yes to those kinds of things. We don't necessarily say no, because there are other resources we can point people to. Like I said, like the soft no, but we don't get involved too deeply. Why is that? Just to preserve our bandwidth and focus. And it's one of those tough ones. It's not like things are unworthy. It's just a human limitation of the, the team's ability to do the work. Like If you're doing that, then you're not doing something else because everybody is busy. If we do have spare cycles, spare bandwidth, then we do consider those kinds of projects. But usually we don't. So you've talked about the healthcare ecosystem, but I assume when you call it an ecosystem, that means you're sort of outside. You're not a care provider, for example. But I'm wondering if you're impacted by regulatory concerns as part of your role in that ecosystem. Yes, we are. And that was another thing that was a surprise during my first week on the job. I have an academic background doing user research or research like this. And I've also been in industry for a good 10, 15 years. So I understand and expected that we would have NDAs that we need to put in place with our research participants. We would have to get informed consent and we'd have to have certain ethical practices about letting people participate and back out and, you know, things that I come to expect as second nature. What I did not understand was that healthcare is healthcare. <laughs> and um, there are quite a few laws that come into play how you can talk about sensitive health information. And I had to get very friendly with all of our attorneys. <laughs> and I will say all of them, but qu quite a few. So my first week, maybe, I met, I got introduced to one of the attorneys that sat near my boss at the time. And he was like, you do what? You, you invite people to come here and tell us what? And so that like, that like kicked off a series of meetings of me speaking with our attorney, our different, and there's several different legal departments inside of a healthcare organization that I also learned, but speaking with, few, with a few of them about what user research is, um, how we can use the data and who we can and cannot talk to. Um, what's very important as a user researcher in healthcare is that you are not soliciting information about somebody's health condition, but it is the context of which they are using our service. So we do have to put, and I learned this in those first couple of months of being on the job, and I now have to teach it to new researchers on the team and put this practice in place, but we do have to do very specific things to protect the data that folks share with us because they are, as you can imagine, if you are in a usability session about using a prototype to refill a prescription, we have to make sure that none of that data is real. It's a prototype, so we are not pulling your health records to build this prototype. But as you give feedback, you might start talking about what happened last time you did this and start talking about your specific prescription drugs. And my researchers have to redirect you. The reason why is because that is protected health information and we have to be um, sensitive to that. And it's just something I never really thought about coming from academia, coming from industry, this idea that if we run like a a common thing we used to do, and I'm sure people still do, is kind of guerrilla hallway research where we just grab somebody and as long as they're not on the project, we get them to give us usability feedback or do an interview about how they might manage this certain situation at home. Well, you do that in healthcare and you're talking to an employee and they might, as part of the usability evaluation or interview, reveal some of their health conditions. 
and we have observers present, that might be a breach of their privacy. So again, we have to be careful of who, who observes sessions, who, who has access to recordings, and how we anonymize and research participant grids even when we send them out to observers. We have to anonymize all of these things that I just didn't even think of before I got here. And we, I spent a lot of time with legal, I'll just use that broad term, with legal for a couple of years to learn the boundaries of what we can and can't do so that we do, you know, we can do research more quickly. But in the beginning, it was kind of like, all right, let's, let's make sure we can recruit these people. Let's make sure that we are compensating them with fair market guidelines and not, and we have all that documented in the appropriate ways because there's also laws about that. It's just an awareness of the regulatory environment we're in and how it impacts research that was such a surprise. Same thing applies for analytics. Like certain ways we cannot look at the data because it is not relevant to design directly or because it uses your PHI, your private health information. Maybe we can switch gears slightly here. It'd be great to hear you talk about, as you've grown the team, what kinds of things you look for in user researchers. Because I've grown the team in different ways, I look for a few different things. Some things are the same. Um, we do look for people who have some sort of demonstrated expertise, either in user research or analytics, data science. You know, you can talk about your craft in a cohesive, coherent way. Um, communication, again, is consistent no matter where I've been, where we do want to know that you can present data in a way or present findings in a way that are consumable. One of the more intangible things that we look for, and I'm, I can't say that I have a perfect way of doing this, is patience. One of the things that I've, like I've alluded to is that healthcare is, we have a lot of rules to follow. Some things we cannot change very quickly, but we can work towards changing. And it may take a long time. And that can be challenging for some folks. Like if you come from an environment that was very fast moving or like I worked at a place once where I was in charge of changing the UI so I can literally open a source file and change the words in an application myself and just publish it and be done with it. Um, <laughs> we have several rounds of review to make sure that what we're saying is legal, for lack of a better term, summarize. <laughs> um, so that's something that I do look for. So we don't want to get folks in who just become really frustrated by how slow things move. On the other side, we also don't want folks who are okay with how slow things move. So it's a delicate balance of, we look for people who have the ability to kind of see the long view and make steps towards it, you know, push boundaries where you can, but not just burn out by doing that. Other skills we look for um, honestly, it helps if you are methodologically agnostic. From a user research perspective, that means that you're comfortable doing interviews, some ethnographic, ethnographic methods, and card sorts or something like that. Like you can do a few different methods. You may not be great at all of them, but you don't. Like I have met people who like specialize that we only do contextual interviews. Like that's all we do. And this team would not be the place for someone like that. And the other thing, again, that's more difficult to select for is some level of empowerment where mentioned earlier a little bit, where you have the bounds of what you can do and know what we are trying to achieve. 
and suggest studies or suggest data sets that may help with making decisions to get us there instead of waiting to be asked to do a thing kind of taking that as an like being an order taker like of course there's collaboration where you know sometimes you get requested to do a study but also having some initiative to be able to see something happening or see a problem and suggest a a way of getting more information to address the problem how does someone demonstrate patience but not too much patience or empowerment so far, anyway, it's all been in, in conversations and interviews and just a description of your past work. And I know it, it's very subjective. And I, as I said, I'm not really saying I'm great at it, but I'm, I'd love a better way. But we do try to ask questions about, you know, typical questions about like, what was your involvement in different projects? How did it start? How did it end? What happened with the findings? And just listen to the way people talk about it. And that has helped a lot in knowing if you have a demonstrated history of taking initiative or if you don't. And if you don't, it's not necessarily a kind of disqualification, but we do try to ask questions to get at if you can, if you're interested in taking initiative and being empowered to lead certain things. I have met people who are not interested. Like they do really like getting a request for a specific Thing and executing against it. And we try to get at that in a conversation in different interview settings. I want to go back. You talked about some of the kinds of places you've worked in. You talked about getting a PhD. I'm wondering, maybe you could talk about the, if there were some decision points. How did you decide to pursue your graduate degree? And when did you learn about user research? Oh man, you're going to have me show my age. I wanted to be a doctor when I was, and this is important, just bear with me. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to high school for health professions in Houston. I went down that path or I started down that path at a very early age. And when I was in high school, I met a psychologist and it was a difficult time. Actually, one of my um, classmates committed suicide. And so the school district brought in a group of psychologists. And at that time, I'd been in hospitals doing rotations as a teenager. So take that for what it means, what that is. But I saw this interaction with this psychologist as much more interesting and helpful than what I was had been exposed to in other other practices. So I shifted focus to becoming a psychologist in high school. That sounds like I have it all figured out. But anyway, um, so I did that in high school. And in undergrad, I worked as a clinical psychologist research assistant. And I didn't like it. I thought clinical psychologist, psychology was not very interesting. And even though they had interesting problems, just that, that experience was not it was kind of boring. Can't think of a better way to say it. So I was in my kind of a research methods lab class. And the TA in that class asked if I wanted to be a research assistant for an applied cognitive psychology professor. And I said yes, and started down the path of doing research on eyewitness testimony and thought that was super interesting and spent two, two and a half years, my last two, two and a half years of undergrad doing that. My last year, so my senior year of college, I finally thought to ask the grad student that I was working with how much cognitive psychologists make. And this was in the, in the late 90s. And he told me like, I think he told me like $35,000 as a professor. And 
I kind of freaked out because I was like, my mom did not do all this, like work all these jobs to put me in through college and do this for me to come out and make about the same much amount of money she did. So like, I think it might've taken me a week to go back to my professor and tell him I was probably going to have to stop doing my research assistantship because I was switching my major back to pre-med and I was just going to become a doctor because I just needed to make more money than that. And he's like, whoa, 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 let me set up some meetings with you with other parts of other professors in the department to tell you about other branches of psychology that are more profitable than becoming a professor of applied cog. And I was like, okay, well, you got a couple of weeks until I have to go to my counselor and change my major. And that's how I found out about human factors and industrial organizational psych. And I also, like I said, I met with a couple of professors that told me about these other branches. I took a couple of courses and applied for IO programs and human computer interaction and human factors programs for grad school. And I ended up going to Rice that had a combined IO human factors department and really loved it. I took a couple of classes in undergrad, like I said, and they didn't really have a human factors class. I just had read about it. So I was kind of on the fence about IO psych, but Rice had a combined department. So I was like, okay, well, I can figure it out in grad school. Um, took my first human factors class and I was like, oh, this is my jam. Like, this is my thing. Technology applied to humans, helping design technology to be more suitable to humans. Yes. Super interesting feel like I can help people and and be able to pay my student loans. <laughs> so um, that's how I ended up in the field or sticking with the field. And when I was in grad school, I did a couple of internships. The one that really kind of sealed the deal for me was I worked in the Habitability and Human Factors Department at Johnson Space Center in Houston as a contractor with Lockheed. But I worked in the Human Factors Department at NASA and like helped with usability evaluations of physical print instructions, websites, space station habitat layouts, like all kinds of different stuff. And I did a little bit of design too. So that was the thing that made that convinced me that I made the right choice because it was so interesting. And I could nerd out with all these people, like other human factors folks. And it was like meaningful work. So kind of at the, I ended up leaving NASA because I was taking too long to graduate. And so I had to kind of finish my dissertation and graduate. And then around that time was like, it was 2006, 2007. And that's when you started seeing kind of user experience jobs show up as called that versus human factors engineers or usability engineers. And um, I ended up taking my kind of first post-graduation job at Dell. And I, actually, I think I was a usability engineer for a while there. My job title changed later to be a UX person. So that's how I ended up here. It's a series of kind of lucky events and unlucky events, but it's not something I knew about early on in undergrad, but I do, in a sense, have a degree in UX. It's called Human Factors. What was the topic of your dissertation? Oh, man. Warning label design. So I was a risk perception and safety person. And my dissertation was about how to design warning labels for over-the-counter diet pills. So how do you warn somebody not to do something that they really, really want to do? If you want to read it, I'll send it to you. <laughs> I mean, so from this period that you're describing, the the, the, you know, the different programs and the different different disciplines that you were discovering and maybe these internships. Do you feel like any of that, maybe not in the literal sense, but do you, do you feel like any of that is present in the work that you're doing now? Definitely. I feel like 
the breadth of my experience in terms of different methods, I had a lot of exposure early on to um, very complicated statistics. I took a lot of stats classes. My dissertation was a mix of ethnography, interviews, and lots of regressions. So where I am now is a joining of all of those things. So I'm familiar with offline experiences. I'm familiar with online experiences in very extreme environments, in very the need to design interactions that are flexible for different scenarios and different physical abilities. Those are some things that I learned at NASA that come into play now. My um, experience doing like lots of usability testing, different styles of um, interviews and like survey construction, like all of that stuff that I did in undergrad, all the stuff I did at NASA, at Dell, PayPal, like all, all of the different environments I've been exposed to all come into play here where I'm trying to help different types of researchers understand how to work in an agile environment even though it might not feel so agile, like understanding those principles and how we can consistently work to get better. It's all relevant. And the one thing that I kind of have consistently kicked myself for is dropping the academic airs, I guess, or the things that I learned in school that are still relevant today that I really dropped and tried to distance myself from in early on in my career, most far as for a few roles, because there was this idea that, oh, you don't want to be too academic. You don't want for folks to think that research takes too, too much time or you need to do all this math. So just kind of drop all that. And I, kind of, I, I say I kind of kick myself for that because I did have to relearn it in this role, relearn a lot of the stats that I dropped and kind of the research design principles that I used a lot earlier, like at NASA and at, uh, in grad school, because now we have so much like, quantitative data at our disposal. And a lot of UX folks do come from a background like I did, where you did learn how to do a lot of statistics and think about a problem from a, a measurement perspective in terms of like chunking up a problem is like, okay, this part should be qualitative. These are parts that we can answer quantitatively. And these parts we probably can ignore for a while until we get these first two chunks done. And that level of thinking has been invaluable in managing a team like this, where we have to chunk up problems. We have to try to answer things as much as we can. And it's a useful skill that I do wish I'd kind of kept and kind of protected more early in my career. But now I, I get to bring it back. And it's been really, really valuable. I mean, maybe just building on that a little bit, you know, if you look at the profession, maybe it's your own organization, maybe it's just the collective profession of user research. Are there things that you would hope to see in terms of evolution or growth in the practice of user research, maybe over the next few years? Yes. <laughs> um, I do feel like there's a lot of things that I would like to see. And I haven't really thought about this before. So I, like, my answers are not in any sort of priority order. Top of mind. I know that everything is um, like software as a service, but there are some of us that live in this world that's highly regulated. So from a tools and methods perspective, I really miss Moray. <laughs> like I miss being able to run um, or having my team be able to run usability sessions and record things locally and like be able to do all like analysis and work using local tools. I know that's a crazy thing to say or like a, a kind of, tangential thing to say, but it's just like, as a profession, we need a wide variety of tools. And I'd feel us gravitating towards the same solutions that don't 
really work very well for some of the hairier parts of the human existence. And I, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's healthcare. <laughs> um, if you think about the things that we have to design, we have, there are parts of our lives that just people dread and trying to figure out your healthcare situation or trying to navigate some aspects of the government are just really hard. And so those are ripe opportunities for a user experience professional to really make a difference and having the tools to do so are super important. And I'll get off of that soapbox. But another area I'd like to see us grow in, and I believe one of your other guests mentioned this too, is a maturation in our methods. We don't spend a lot of time on coming up with different approaches. Um, I don't see a lot of meta-analysis, and that term is can be loaded too, but before you look at a breadth of work, even qualitative usability, I would really like to see us advance ways that we look at them across time and across multiple iterations to pull out different insights and patterns that we should be looking at. And another is on the other side of it. I've really liked to see a more user focus when it comes to data science. And this is not an Express Script statement, but just in general, you see a lot of automation in place, like like bots to help, I don't know, whatever you want, like fill in the blank. You think you're, you're IMing with a person and it's a bot, or you go to IM and you think you're going to talk to a person, but it's a bot. But like lots of applications of data science and like user facing automation has not been put in place to solve a problem that a user has. It's been put in place to solve that a, a problem that the business has. So in terms of user researchers, I feel like we can add a tremendous amount of value in that space to help bring that kind of work along in terms of solving real problems that real humans have. Um, and to do that, you do need to learn some of that. I won't say learn the methods of that world, but learn how it works at a high enough level to speak intelligently to user-centered design in that context. Those are great. Is there anything that we should have talked about today that we didn't get to? You want to make sure we cover? I think we kind of covered it, but one of the ways I've started to talk about kind of the broad umbrella of experience research, the way that my my team is made up, the way that I think of it, is like it is part of our ethical responsibility. And I think that has come across in our conversation. But I mean, like I said earlier, we, we really want to make sure that experiences don't just happen to people, that they are designed with their voices considered as part of the solution and that it's continually refined based on reality. And I do feel like in some scenarios, user experience professionals can be laser focused on a UI or a few screens within a UI kind of miss that view of what does this mean in context of your user's reality. And I know that can be kind of big and overwhelming, but you can have an approach that chunks that up into reasonable, solvable problems that you can then work with other folks in the organization to go off and solve. Well, I really like how you brought us full circle from where we started at the beginning to where we ended up. Thank you for the conversation today and for being on the podcast. It's been really excellent to get to speak to you. Oh, great. And I'm like, just realized that my husband decided to go chop some wood while we were talking. But okay. <laughs> I think we're having barbecue this weekend. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening. Tell your colleagues about Dollars to Donuts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and all the places where pods are catched. Visit portugal.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. And we're on Twitter at Dollars to Donuts. That's D 
D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd. 